Welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of July 29th, Reactions to the July FOMC. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss our takeaways from the July Fed meeting, as well as the impact of fiscal and monetary stimulus on credit spreads historically, and what that may mean for the path of credit spreads going forward. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creeter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. All right, Dan, so we're recording this immediately following the Fed's July meeting, and I don't think market participants were expecting much from this month's Fed meeting. And looking at my notes here, I think that's about what we got. Yeah, it was probably one of the less anticipated meetings I can remember in quite some time. And we didn't get too much new from Powell. Of course, they extended some of the emergency lending facilities, but that was announced yesterday. Today, my notes from the press conference mostly centered around Powell insisting that there was more stimulus to come, that the Fed was committed to support the economy. None of that overly surprising. Yeah, I agree with your assessment that none of it was surprising. Even the extension of extraordinary liquidity facilities isn't it surprising? We talked about that last week as something the Fed had to do and likely before the beginning of September. They got out well ahead of it and did it in late July, but I don't think that comes as a surprise to anybody. Chair Powell said that the most important driver of the economy is the virus. That doesn't come as a surprise. A lot of focus on stimulus. Again, not very surprising. I think one of the things that I noted is at least somewhat interesting was how forcefully Chair Powell was stressing that the labor market is going to need a very long time to recover and that both high frequency data and the data that they're seeing in the labor markets are suggesting a slowdown going forward. Now, that may not come as a huge surprise given the path of the virus since the June meeting, but it sort of confirmed for me that what the Fed is seeing means that we may need to start adjusting our expectations for NFP prints in August and September lower. He said something else at the beginning about consumer spending being down based on credit and debit card data that they've seen, uh, that it's actually declined since late June, which I found somewhat surprising. So I do think the Fed is looking at the economy right now and sees a much worse outlook than maybe some in the market do. Yeah. And so as a result, it's not surprising that almost the rest of my notes here center on stimulus. And so I think that's the most important issue that we have to talk about. But before diving into that topic that will probably take a while, I want to briefly mention at least another note I took on Chair Powell's comments. And that was when he got a question on Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act, which is what gives the Federal Reserve their emergency powers. And the reporter asked specifically about whether or not 13.3 gave the Fed the power to buy equities. And after a sort of in different response, the reporter followed back up and pressed him on it a bit by asking, quote, does Section 13.3 limit you to buying only debt? And Chair Powell sort of hesitated a bit and then said, you could interpret the statute that way. And then he expanded a bit by talking about how 13.3 
really talks about giving the Fed the ability to step in in times of emergency and provide credit or lending. He focused on the word lending. So while he stopped short of saying that he couldn't buy equities under 13.3, he insinuated that at least to me. How did you read that? Yeah, I had the same takeaway. He did mention explicitly that they haven't done any research on or thought about buying equities. And I do agree that it would be a somewhat more difficult proposition than buying corporate debt for the Fed to buy equities. When the Fed buys corporate debt, it is really just encouraging the flow of credit to borrowers who might be locked out due to liquidity or other concerns. For the Fed to go in and buy equities, I think it's a more difficult program to justify, especially now where the equity market is. But yeah, it does seem like Chair Powell is not fully expecting that question. And that's where we got, I think, some of that equivocation that you alluded to. I think it's worth noting and talking away for the next time, and hopefully the next time isn't for another decade, but you've seen increasing speculation that now that the Fed has gone this far down the credit spectrum into investment-grade corporates and even into some high-yield corporates that at the time of the next crisis, whenever that is, the Fed may need to buy equity. So this, so today's answer doesn't have any near-term impact, obviously, but it's something to tuck away. I mean, I hadn't really thought about Looking at 13.3 is restricting the Fed to buying debt because the clause is in there primarily to ensure the flow of credit. But it makes sense on its face. And his response to it made me think they've engaged in at least a little thought, even if they're not at the point of buying equity yet. So just something to note. And then back to obviously the most important near-term takeaways from today's meeting. And that was Chair Powell's focus time and time again throughout the meeting on stimulus. I mean, I'm looking at my notes now and Almost all the bullet points I wrote down is in some way or another stating that the Fed believes that more stimulus is going to be necessary from both the Federal Reserve and from fiscal authorities. He got a question about what more can the Fed do. He mentioned that his credit facilities were, quote, effectively unlimited. So, you know, we kind of knew that already, but that he's thinking that way and that he thinks that the Fed is going to have to be stepping in to do more makes me think the Fed thinks there's still some bad to come and the financial markets are going to need the Fed to increase their asset purchases, which also goes to why they extended those facilities yesterday. And then also harping on fiscal stimulus numerous times, providing real world examples, talking about jobs in hospitality sectors, in travel, in restaurants, that those jobs, there just aren't going to be enough of them, that those jobs have structurally decreased in number and that those people are going to need help if they're going to continue paying their bills. So he mentioned he was encouraged by the speculation that fiscal authorities are working on another package, but it looks like commentary from President Trump and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin today suggests that there's still a pretty wide gulf for Democrats and Republicans to bridge. Yeah, Dan, and not just that, but it also seems like there's a gulf just within the Republican Party between some who favor much smaller government and much lower levels of spending. Then there's others within the party who are favoring something bigger than the trillion dollar stimulus that they've proposed. So basically, I think there's a lot of different ways that this could play out just from the negotiation standpoint. And let's be honest, there's a pretty sizable gap that needs to be crossed. I mean, let's just start with a brief overview of what the Republican proposal has in it. We're looking at another stimulus check to the same people that received it the first time in the same amount. And then we're looking at an expansion of the PPP money that will allow borrowers who have already received PPP money, some of them to take out another PPP loan, borrowers that are able to demonstrate that they have 300 or less employees and have suffered a 50% or greater decline in revenue. There's a carve out for seasonal businesses that will be loans, not grants. We're giving some money to states and educational facilities, though way less than what the Democrats 
are calling for. And unemployment insurance, which is probably going to be the biggest sticking point in these negotiations, Republicans want to convert to $200 from $600 for an interim period before September when benefits will transition to what appears to be 70% of what workers would have otherwise gotten paid. So no matter how you slice it, we're looking at a relatively significant drop in terms of unemployment benefits for those who have been receiving extraordinary benefits so far. And Clearly, at this point, Dan, more fiscal stimulus is priced into risk assets. The question is how much and if the bill ends up at a trillion dollars or so, give or take, in line with what the Republicans have currently proposed, how will the market view that? Yeah, I mean, I think you don't have to look much further than the CARES Act and the market response to the CARES Act, which is a two and a half trillion dollar bill. I think the market is well aware that the economy needs more fiscal stimulus. And I don't think that this trillion dollar bill that the Republicans are proposing is going to be met favorably by the market. Now, the Democrats proposal is three and a half trillion dollars. I think it's safe to say we'll see nothing near that magnitude. But something in the middle, I think, would be more well received by the market. And given that this is probably the last stimulus bill of Trump's first term, I think we're going to need to see something more sizable than what the Republicans have proposed, or else we're liable to see some spread widening, I think. You make the key point, though, that this is expected to be the final fiscal stimulus of President Trump's first term, or potentially only term. But that's extremely important, because if this stimulus, say it's a trillion dollars, the original stimulus bought us, what, three, four months, and that was as much as four trillion. So, you know, back of the envelope being very rough here, Another trillion dollars will buy us another month or two, which gets us through September, October. And at that point in time, we're looking at the elections, unprecedented uncertainty around those elections, giving questions over election officials, mail-in voting, how we're going to deal with an election at the time of pandemic, and potentially there being a contested outcome. And then it's unclear what Congress is going to be focused on, sorting out the election or potentially passing needed fiscal stimulus. Are we relying on a lame duck president for more fiscal stimulus? I mean, it goes on and on, the uncertainty later in the year. So if this is the last fiscal stimulus that we may need to take us all the way through the winter time until a vaccine arrives, and as Powell said today, people feel more confident to leave their homes, a trillion dollars feels underwhelming to me. And like you said, could lead to credit spread widening, especially if some small businesses that have been hoping for a V-shaped recovery and have hung on this long ultimately are forced to go into bankruptcy because the recovery hasn't been as strong as they were expecting. And this week, I looked at some bankruptcy numbers to try and see if I could find any interesting trends. And what I found was that as we go to the end of the month, July is now officially the largest bankruptcy month in terms of number of bankruptcies. It's not the largest in terms of bankruptcy by volume. It still trails both April and May in that metric because in April and May, we had a few very large bankruptcies, Hertz, Latin American Airlines, that blow up the volume by bankruptcy. But in terms of number of bankruptcies, July is the largest. And then taking that a step further, I dug into the data to look at the volume of bankruptcies by companies with less than a billion dollars in total assets. And I found that July is now the largest in those bankruptcies. And in second place is March. And piecing this together, you can interpret this data as 
Okay, so in March, we enter lockdown and some small businesses go bankrupt immediately. Then at the end of March, we get stimulus flowing from both the Fed and from the government and small businesses hang on. And now as we reached mid to late July and that fiscal stimulus starts to fade, we're seeing again an increase in small business bankruptcy that's going to require more stimulus or we're going to see those bankruptcies start to rise. Now, for credit markets, small business bankruptcy is probably unlikely to have a major impact. But the impact on the labor markets and the general weakness in the economy, that's what could reprice credit spreads wider if we don't get more stimulus. Yeah. And Dan, I think that's an interesting point, especially because as we've talked about, credit spreads typically follow bankruptcies, both in terms of volumes and also just in terms of instances of bankruptcies. This was certainly the case in 2001. It was less so the case in 2008. But as we've talked about before, that was more because we were facing a banking crisis rather than one related to businesses generally. But yeah, as we've seen bankruptcies peak in July, we haven't seen that sort of weakness in credit spreads that typically follows, which is interesting. It's a very important relationship, Dan, and inextricably tied between credit spreads and defaults is stimulus. And just to demonstrate that, I went back and I looked at the economic slowdowns of both 2001 and 2008, and I was able to sort of break them down into five regimes in terms of fiscal and monetary stimulus. And from a high level, the pattern we were able to identify was there is some shock that sends the economy into recession. At that point, credit spreads widen significantly. And then the central bank and fiscal authorities enact stimulus and sort of stabilize the economy a bit. Credit spreads stabilize and then recover significantly during this phase. And inevitably, financial conditions and economic data improve to the point where authorities don't feel like they need to have the pedal to the metal in terms of stimulus anymore, and they, they back away from stimulus. And in both 01 and in 08, at this juncture, we saw credit spreads rewiden, fiscal and monetary authorities having to sort of reactivate stimulus in 08 QE2. In 01, the Fed had to resume cutting rates after market participants thought they had bottomed to ultimately provide more accommodation to the market before we move into the final phase, which is now they can finally take a step back from stimulus and the shock has actually passed. So we were able to identify that pattern in both 01 and 08. And looking at credit spreads in the current cycle, you can make the argument that when stimulus actually slows down, we're going to see another rewidening in credit spreads. Now, it's not going to be back to the wides. It may not even be close, but we could see a pop when stimulus slows down. The question is timing. Based off of Chair Powell's comments today, it certainly doesn't feel like the Fed is close to stepping back from accommodation. On the fiscal side, it does appear that we're close. I mean, sure, we're going to get another package, but $1 trillion is definitely a slowdown. It might be a disappointment. And ultimately, it might be a long time before another fiscal stimulus package can be put together. So whether or not credit spreads back up because stimulus in the next few months proves not sufficient to warrant credit spreads where they are now, time will tell. Now, for investors, the question of how to position portfolios, obviously, we've seen spreads come a long way. And from an absolute spread level, it may appear that there's not much room for them to continue narrowing. Although, if you look at spreads a different way, it would appear that spreads have a lot of room to continue narrowing. Right, Dan. Well, given the rally in rates, there's two different ways of looking at spread levels right now, as you've mentioned. Spreads are just inside of their long-term averages in terms of absolute levels. Investment-grade corporate spreads are around 140 basis points or so. But if you look at that as a percentage of treasury yields, they're actually 
one to two standard deviations wide of their long-term average and wider than they've been excluding 2020 since the financial crisis. And that's obviously just because treasury yields are trading mostly below 1% right now. And so there's an interesting dichotomy there, I think, where depending on how you frame it, you could see value as being really, really attractive or very, very unattractive. But certainly for an investor deciding between the 50 basis point yield you might get on a treasury or the 2% yield you'll get on a corporate, there does seem to be some value there in investment grade credit. Yeah, a ton of value, it looks like to me when you're looking at it on a percentage of treasury basis. And I think more than anything, this makes the argument very well that whenever there is some type of vaccine or whenever COVID-19 fears do begin to fade, when we get back into that low volatility period of stability, credit spreads, I think, are almost certain to make new lows on an absolute basis, given how low treasury yields are. But that's in the long term. How do we position portfolios in the near term? It's a very difficult question. I think that looking ahead one year from today, 140 basis points on IG indices is probably going to end up looking like a bargain. But the other half of me thinks you're going to have an opportunity to add it more than 140 basis points in the next few months, given all of the headwinds that the fall months might bring in terms of virus, lockdowns, presidential election, fading stimulus, some of the factors that we've talked about in Chair Powell discussed at length in his press conference today. It just seems to me that the near-term path lies wider. Yeah, Dan, I agree that there's a near-term tug-of-war between unprecedented economic uncertainty and unprecedented fiscal and monetary stimulus. But it does seem like once the virus concerns are in the rear view, the stimulus will largely be still in place in the economy. The longer-term path for spreads should be narrower. But in the near term, it's less clear. Our view has been for a while, slightly underweight credit. We're going to tweak that a little bit and recommend adding positions over the next several months, certainly viewing any backup as a buying opportunity. Yeah, Dan, I couldn't agree more. Unless you have any thoughts you'd like to share on the current coin shortage and the Fed's coin task force, I think we can end it here. Anything to comment there? This concludes Macro Horizons. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular 
investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.